welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we return to The Prof, Howard Hendricks. The combined ministries of just eight of his former students, a veritable who's who of evangelical Christians, reach close to 30,000 people in pews every week. And you add radio programs and books to that number, the audience expands to millions. Today, Howard Hendricks answers the question, what kind of ministry does it take to make a permanent impact on a degenerating society? The following material is copywritten by and provided courtesy of the Moody Bible Institute. Thank you very much. I cannot tell you how deeply my wife and I have enjoyed and been enriched through this week. You guys turn my crank. I wish you would come down to Dallas and be my students. (laughs) I'd love to perpetuate this conference. But American Airlines and I have an agreement, and that is if I'm not there at the time the plane leaves, they are free to leave. (laughs) And they take their option every time. So if at the end of this message you see me running like a gazelle to my right, it's not because I want to leave you. It's because I have to catch a plane for other commitments tomorrow. God has blessed my life beyond description. I sometimes think I live a life that most people only dream about. And I do not know of any privilege that God gives me more than to spend my time with pastors. Gene and I just returned from Ukraine with almost 600 pastors at a pastor's conference. It was a millennial experience. (laughs) I just enjoyed every moment, and that has been true this week. Ours is a generation in which everything nailed down is coming loose in which the things that people said could not happen are happening. And thoughtful, though unregenerate individuals are asking, where is the glue with which to reassemble the disintegrating and disarrayed parts? Eugene O'Neill makes one of his characters say it so graphically. You cannot build a marble temple out of a mixture of mud and manure. (laughs) But we continue to try. Man is almost insanely committed to the proposition that he has the answers to his problems. He's ever building his sandcastles only to discover the inundating tide of reality washing them out to sea. And then he seeks someone to blame. It had to happen in my hometown of Philadelphia. Scratched across the wall were these words. 
Humpty Dumpty was pushed. <laughs> Living in this kind of a society forces a question. What kind of a pastor, what kind of a ministry does it take to make a permanent impact on a degenerating society? I think the answer is found in an ancient text far more relevant than this morning's newspaper. It's relevant because it's revealed. And may I invite you to turn once more to our Father's word as found in 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to focus your attention on two brief passages in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, where you discover three of the metaphors in this chapter. And 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, where you find three motivations that must drive your ministry. Here's the aged Paul mentoring his protege. And by the way, if you want to learn how to mentor, you need to study First and Second Timothy and Titus, where you have practical manifestations of the incredible giftedness that Paul had in a ministry of multiplication through mentoring. God never calls us to any task without providing all of the equipment with which to fulfill it. And that's certainly true in these books. So let's look first of all in verses 7 at the three metaphors. These metaphors answer the question, what? In verse 1 and verse 2, you have the introduction. He first of all underscores the person and then the process absolutely essential to your ministry. The context is clear. Sude or suun, if you know Greek occurs four times in this book and must be translated you then or you therefore it's always emphatic he's telling Timothy in the midst of the general landslide you are called to resist the prevailing mood. Look at verses 15 and 16 in the first chapter. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. And then he goes on to say there is only one notable exception. His name is Onesimus. And because these men have failed, you must 
succeed. Never mind what people are thinking or saying or doing. Be strong, verse 1 says, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. My friend, you not only need the grace of God for salvation, you need the grace of God for your ministry. And I don't know of a time in my life, not that long, when I think there was a greater need for a ministry of the grace of God through men and women that God is calling into ministry. These are tough days in which to minister. I don't think there's been a time in my 60-some years of ministry that has been rougher, particularly on pastors. Pastors are being battered, and pastors are resigning in droves. And this is why we need the message that God gave to Timothy. To remember that your resources are not in you. They are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to spell out the process. Timothy is not simply to preserve the truth. He's to pass it on. And he spells four stages in the transmission. Please note, it is a ministry of multiplication. Four stages. It begins with Christ, who communicated it to Paul. Paul communicated it to Timothy. Timothy was to communicate it to a group of faithful men. And the faithful men were to be equipped and were to be gifted in such a way that they could continue the process. The implication being who will reach others, who will reach others. And you and I are sitting in this auditorium as a result of that process. This is true apostolic succession. And true apostolic succession does not move around the man, it moves around the message. Every time, think of it, every time you build into the life of another individual, you launch a process which ideally will never end. As Joe was introducing me, I could not help but think my wife can confirm what I'm going to tell you. I came home one day. This was during the 60s, as I recall. At least it was a period of time when everybody was dumping on the church and on the ministry. And I came home one day and I said, sweetheart, I finally found a young man who is a pastor. And his name was Joe Stoll. And one of the great privileges of my life, I'm sure my deposit in that incredible man was minimal. But whatever it was to think that I had the privilege of building into a life of an individual far more gifted than I would ever be and far, far more effective 
in his ministry. My friend, that's what needs to grip your heart as you leave tonight. That you are going home, you are going back to your ministry, and you are praying that it will be a ministry of multiplication. There's a little kid in your Sunday school. There's a young person in your group. There's a businessman who's fed up with a whole setup that God wants to touch. And you will be the instrument that he uses to motivate that person. Now let's look with that backdrop at the three metaphors. In verses 3 and 4, the first one, the committed soldier. So we read, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets involved with civilian affairs. Don't get distracted. It drives me nuts spiritually to watch men in the ministry get involved in real estate and selling insurance and everything else in the world because they've lost the spiritual guts to trust God to meet their every need. And I think we need to come to grips that we can become a generation of wimps when God is calling us to be soldiers. Some of you know the story of my father's salvation. I prayed for 42 years for him to come to Christ. But let me remind you, the words of my father was after he was led to Christ on his knees by a pastor in the Washington area because his last tour of duty was in the Pentagon, got up from his knees, saluted the pastor and said, Sir, you need to know. I'm under a new commanding officer. And that's the picture. And it's refreshing to me to see an increasing number of students, I think more proportionately than I've ever seen, who in effect understand that the role of a soldier is to suffer. This is not a fun and games assignment. This is not a nice lemon party. Lemonade, that is. It's a battle. And the casualties are high. And the bullets are real. Do you understand your role? If that's not clear in your mind, I have been praying for this session that God will make it so clear that you never forget who you are. Now, there's an awful lot in Paul's writing about warfare and armor and weapons. And you say, well, why? Because he spent so much of his time in prison. He spent so much of his time watching Roman soldiers. And he had a lot of time to think about the comparison between a Roman soldier and a Christian soldier. And this is why he's constantly facing us with the fact that if you're going to serve the Savior with distinction, you are in a high risk factor. Harm's way is your way of life. The second one is the disciplined athlete. It's found in verse 5. 
Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rule. I am convinced Paul was a sports fan. Just look at all of the variety of sports that he brings into his messages as analogies. And he understood that in the Olympic Games, the primary purpose was keeping the rules. And so every athlete on that whole docket had a judge who lived with him 24 hours a day. And at any point in time, with the most exacting requirements, that man could say, you are through, and you were gone. It wasn't a fun and games any more than the soldiers is. And the interesting thing is, Paul's going to pick that up. If you'll turn back for just a moment to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says, don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Of course, that's the way it is in racing. But you run in such a way to get the prize. This is a unique race. In this race, all can win. Not all will. But all can. How? By running in such a way. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. My friend, that's an under-translation. They do it to get a crown that will not, not last. It will not last 24 hours after they put those leaves around your head. You're not working for a passing crown. You are working for a permanent crown. And so that's why he says we do not do it to get a crown that will last forever. You're not in a ministry for money, are you? Don't look at me that way. Say something. I mean, if you are, you don't have the intellectual qualifications for the job. And here's his application. Try this on for size. I've never recovered from this. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body, the Greek says, black and blue. And I make it my slave. Why, Paul? So that after I have preached to others, I myself might not be disqualified for the prize. If that was a live option to the Apostle Paul, where do you come in? Where do I come in? Having spent all of these years preaching and teaching and ministering the Word of God, the possibility that I will be disqualified because I'm not playing according to the biblical rules. The third one is found in verse 6, and that is, 
The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Notice the frequency in the New Testament of all of these three metaphors. Paul says it over and over. I worked hard. We spent night and day in order to accomplish our objective. I learned that farming is not an exciting profession. I will never forget a summer I spent on a farm in a wheat situation. Man, I have never worked so hard in all of my life. I came home at night, man, I didn't even get into a shower. I just fell into a bed and went out like a light. You get up the next morning and all you have are those little eyes shining out through the dirt that you never took off the night before. Only to go out for 14 more hours. Taking in that wheat and bundling it and dropping the stuff off, hoping the thing won't come out all over the place. It's rough. It demands patience. And there are no cheerleaders. By the way, there are none in your study. Did you discover that? All of these years of studying the Word of God, I've never had a cheerleader in my study. And everybody said, hey, Holly, go for it, baby! But he says the harvest is great. It's satisfying. It's rewarding. And the harvest to you is not only the godliness that your time in the word will produce, but the fruit that will remain because you communicated to others. Isn't it interesting that he adds reflect, verse 7, reflect. On what I am saying. Why? Because the Lord will give you insight into all of this. So what are you called to? You're called to three things. You are called, first of all, to being a soldier. You're called to being an athlete. And you're called to being a farmer. But what are the motivations? Will you look at verse 15? Verse 15 should not be translated. Most of us who memorized the old King James Version memorized it incorrectly. It's not study. It has nothing to do with study. The best translation is, do your best. Make it your aim. See, it was Socrates who said, like archers, we shall stand a far greater chance of hitting the target if we can see it. That's <laughs> what made him Socrates. <laughs> see, he delineates the lines of the target. And in order to make them as personal as I know how to make it, I'm going to put them in the form of a question. Because these are my questions every single day of my life. Question number one. Is this your motivation? Is the Lord well pleased? Paul says, do your best to present yourself to God. As one approved. It's emphatic. 
Have you discovered that it's possible to be eminently successful with men and a total failure with God? You see, there are only two kinds of workmen. That's the only option in your ministry. You're either good or you're bad. You're either approved or you're not approved. You either pass the test, tried and true like medals, or you failed the test. And verse 15 tells us of two who forfeited God's approval. Is the Spirit of God ever etched on the ledger of your life those words that fell from the lips of Jesus Christ? Without me, you can do nothing. Oh, the awful finality of those words. Something. Nothing. The Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible. It's a supernatural life in which everything is coming from God and nothing is coming from you or me. And that's what makes it so powerful. Shortly after I became a Christian, someone wrote here in the flyleaf of my Bible these words, When I try, I fail. When I trust, he succeeds. My friend, there's a world of theology in that couplet. See, the flesh only knows one thing, and that's failure. And by the way, God has no self-improvement program for your flesh. And the spirit only knows one thing, and that's success. And to the extent that you and I take each and every step by means of the spirit, then, and only then, can we succeed in our life as a Christian, our ministry as a pastor. You know what my greatest fear for you men is? It's my greatest fear for myself. It's not that you will fail. It's that you will succeed in doing the wrong things in the wrong way. Watch the danger of a misplaced confidence. So I've spent a lot of time with you this week. So I'm getting to know you better and better every time I come. And some of you are incredibly gifted. Some of you are very, very well trained. Some of you have an experience base that is almost ideal. I hope you don't trust in any of them. God want to use your giftedness? That's why he gave it to you. So want to use your education, your training? Certainly. So want to use your experience? Always. Just don't trust in it. Make sure your trust is riveted on God. George MacDonald said it. God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. I love it. The second question, is the word, the work, well done? He says, a workman who does not need to be ashamed. And when you read this, you are compelled to ask, why would I be ashamed? Well, let me suggest two reasons to provoke your thinking. 
First of all, you will be ashamed because all too frequently you are operating without standards. You're aiming too low. Anything is good enough for God. We're plagued with a mania of mediocrity. I'm just finishing a discipleship program with a surgeon who's been 11 years in his process of surgical training to minister in the mission field in a very distinctive role. And every morning we would get together about 5.30 and I'd say, what do you got to do today? And he'd tell me, And I'd back off and think, whatever makes us think that in the ministry, you got a deal going. That you're not going to pay a price. I mean, you know, one of the things for living a while and hanging around a lot of significant people like you is you learn a heck of a lot. And I have never found a man, a woman, and whatever the ministry is who did not pay a very high price for the ministry God gave him. Doesn't come on the backstroke. But not only without standards, you will be ashamed if you are operating without sacrifice. It's almost a foreign word in the American language. We're not only aiming too low, it's costing too little. Children of Israel, you will remember, were dying like flies. David went to the high priest and said, what shall we do? He said, David, you better go offer up sacrifices to the Lord our God. So he ends up outside of the home of a man by the name of Araunah. I'm sure that guy's heart skipped a couple beats as he looked out. Here's the king with all of his entourage. He rushes out and says, David, what can I do for you? David says, I want to buy a piece of property. You what? You're the king. What do you want to do? I want to offer up sacrifices. I'll give you the property. I'll give you the sacrifices. I'll give you everything you need. And David said, no, you won't. David was not a freeloader. And then I think the most significant words ever fell from the man's lips. He said, neither will I offer unto the Lord my God. Of that which costs me nothing. See, he understood that the service that counts is the service that costs. And I'm finding an increasing number of people in ministry who are coming to the end of their life. They're at the top of the pile in their field, largest church, largest ministry. And they are at the bottom of life in terms of fulfillment. They're successful, but they're not significant. They're famous, but they're not faithful. They're celebrities, but they're not servants. I think the words that are in my mind right now like a piece of glass.
It's a name all of you know. He was one of the greatest expositors of the last generation who ended his life by saying, I learned how to build a great church, but I never learned how to build great people. That ought to scorch you permanently. What are you building? Are you building people, men and women, young people, boys and girls, who are essentially so distinctive that they stand out in the midst of our perverted society? There's a third question. Don't miss it. Paul asked the question, is the word well used? One who correctly handles the word of truth. Isn't it interesting? Paul is informing us that our work is going to be evaluated in terms of our effectiveness with the word of God. And the wording by here, by the way, here is very significant. It only occurs three times in the Bible. Once in the New Testament here and twice in the book of Proverbs. It means to cut a, a path in the right direct direction. Not to divide rightly, but to cut straight. Whether you are cutting a road through a densely forested area. Whether you are shooting an arrow, but in danger of missing the mark. Whether you are farming and laying down a furrow that is constantly going like this, rather than straight. And I've often asked myself, what is he asking me to do? And my conclusion is he's asking me to be a craftsman. And so you ask appropriately, how do you do that with the word? Can I give you three simple ways that you can understand and employ? The first thing you need to do with the truth of God is to know it. You cannot communicate out of a vacuum. You cannot impart what you do not possess. And that's why in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, he says, All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Write down in your notes if you're taking them, Ephesians 4. That's the whole philosophy of ministry. That's why you are paid. And that is to equip people for their work of ministry. How do you do that if you don't know the word? And it's a lifelong goal. But secondly, you got to live it. I'm discovering, working particularly with pagans, that our generation is weary of words, but they're starving for reality. 
And perhaps that's why our Lord said so incisively on one occasion to the disciples, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Implications, stop calling me Lord or start doing what I tell you. But you not only need to know it and live it, you need to share it. You say, well, how do you do that? Well, you do it by your life as well as by your lips. Do you ever ask, have someone ask you, I don't know how many times they've been asked, which is more important, to share the word by your life or by your lip? I said, well, I fly a great deal. And I made an observation. Every airplane has at least two wings, one on the right, one on the left. Which one is more important? Depends on who's flying. When I'm flying, I want one on both sides. And that's the kind of ministry Jesus had. Remember it, because this will make it more significant to you. If Jesus Christ could do it by life alone, he would have saved every individual in his generation. Because he lived a perfect life. But that's why over and over again in the Gospels, he's sharing, he's sharing, he's sharing constantly by his lips. But lips that were confirmed by a life. Somebody who's willing to create in others a hunger and a thirst to study for themselves. Three metaphors, three motivators. Your metaphors will determine the kind of ministry you have. The motivations will determine the kind of person, pastor, youth director, that you are. And those metaphors call for commitment. They call for discipline. They call for hard work. So glad for a pagan father who taught me the value of hard work. We worked in the Depression, scraping walls in the Philadelphia area. Have you ever done that? I wouldn't recommend it, especially when you had hot walls that draw the paper to it. And it's like chipping off cardboard. And I can remember my father waking up over and over again and say, son, another day in which to work. Man, I have students sometime, oh, bravo, we gotta take a break. For what? I don't know, but I'm tired. I haven't seen you do anything to exert any energy. Let's do something different. Okay, what do you suggest? Let's take a work break. Where did we pick this one up? The three motivations. Take it. Is the Lord well pleased? Not your congregation. I hope they appreciate what you're doing. Not your denomination. 
not your friends, even your wife or husband. Is God well pleased with what you're doing? Is the work well done or is it done sloppy and shoddy and hit or miss? Anything's good enough for God. No, it isn't. And is the word well used? Do I know it? Yes. Am I experiencing it? Not enough. And am I living to communicate it? The answer to these questions will determine, my friend, whether you and I ever hear those words we talk about. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Many years ago, I was exposed to a poem. Most of it escaped me. But a few words have etched themselves on my mind. The poem is entitled, The Night They Burned Shanghai. And the words are, some men die in ashes. Some men die in flames. Some men die inch by inch, playing silly little games. How will you die? Die you will. We're running 100% on it. And unless Jesus Christ reverses the odds by coming back again, all of us will die. Are you playing church? That may be why you spend so much time throwing up over being in the ministry. Or are you freshly dedicating yourself to the greatest privilege God could ever give a human being? And that's to be in the ministry. Don't stoop to be the President of the United States. Go for it. You've been listening to Dr. Howard Hendricks, affectionately known as The Prof. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.